Well, welcome to Salem Chapel. I have the privilege of being able to say that uh, to you this morning for the first time. I say that to you as well. If you're watching us online, let me thank you for tuning in as well. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 through 23. If you are, were not with us last week, we are in the second week of this series, walking through the book of Judges. We're gonna do this all through the fall and into uh, December, Lord willing. And it's a series entitled Broken People, Faithful God. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, really what we need to understand before we dive into uh, these verses this morning is we really need to understand really the whole narrative of scripture. Aaron mentioned this last week, but I'm going to mention it again because I want this to stick with you. That from Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, all the way to Revelation, there's 66 books in the Bible, that the theme, the, story, the overall arching story of the Bible is God redeeming his people back to himself. That you have in Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve sinning, and ever since that act of sin, God has been on a mission to redeem his people back to himself. And it's important that you understand that because when you go to a book like the book of Judges, that is violent and that is disturbing, like if you've already begun reading and we have our reading plan um, that, that is encouraging you to read through the book of Judges as we teach through it week by week. If you don't have access to that, you're watching us online, you can go to salemchapel.org backslash judges. You can open up another tab on your computer if you're watching us right now. You can do that. I encourage you to do that if you're in this room on your own and you can read that reading plan. That reading plan has you reading the passage of scripture that we are going to talk about, teach on. The, the coming Sunday. So this week, meaning you should have already read through Judges 2, verses 6 through 23, what we're going to look at. But you didn't have to even go past the first chapter to be like, man, there's some disturbing things in this book. Like you have the, you have the people of Israel cutting off uh, the Canaanites' big toes and big thumbs, right? Like, like that's disturbing. That should be disturbing to you. And so what do you do with a book like this? But what we need to understand is regardless of what book you are reading, that you need to understand that it fits into that overarching theme of God redeeming his people back to himself. That when the book of Revelation closes, it looks towards the future of a day that Jesus Christ will come back and he will rule and reign for all of eternity. There will be no more sin. There will be no more consequences of sin. And the story will have been accomplished but until then, just like today and all the way back in the book of Judges in the, this history of Israel, you see a lot of dysfunction, you see a lot of violence going on, and the reality is, is even in spite of that, God is working. And what we're going to see in this series is a reminder of what you should already know about yourself, that you are broken. And I don't say that in a, to make you feel worse about yourself. I don't make that to feed your insecurities. I don't say any of that for, I don't, I don't say that so you can have negative talk between your ears. No, 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 I say that as a reality. You already know that. We're not perfect. We're broken. And it's in understanding that brokenness that we can rejoice all the more that we have a faithful God and his faithfulness is not defined by my fickleness. His faithfulness isn't defined by my unfaithfulness. And if there's ever an overarching theme in the book of Judges, it is that statement right there. 
Now, here's what I want to explain. This book is entitled Judges, and we're going to find different judges. Chapters 1 and 2 are really an overview of the book. What we're going to look at this morning, I'll mention in a second, is still in that overview of what is going to take place in the chapters that we're going to read. But next week, we start in chapter 3, Lord willing, chapter 3, all the way through chapter 16, specific judges are mentioned and what went on during their rule. Now, here's what you need to understand. They did not function like judges of today. Like, I'm going to be somewhat silly, but they didn't wear black robes. They didn't have a gavel in their hand. They didn't sit behind a big wooden desk and have lawyers come to them and present cases. That's not what they were. They were more like chieftains. They were warriors. They led the people of Israel from the time that they were appointed. Different tribes had different judges throughout this history that we are going to look at. But what we're going to see over and over again in this story is this progression, right? This cycle of sin and disobedience and repentance back to the Lord and repeat that over and over and over again. And you know what that reveals to me and you know what that ought to reveal to you? Is that even though this happened thousands of years ago, what's true of Israel's heart in this book is often true of ours. Is we're sinful. We often have cycles that we repeat over and over and over again. And so what we want to do in this book is to help us from God's word look and say, how can we live a life that in spite of our brokenness, we can live into the faithfulness of God so we don't have this cyclical nature that just treats the Lord as a 911 phone call, but actually lives in relationship with him, that grows in relationship with him. And so that's our goal. That's our desire. Let me give you the title of the message this morning. If you're taking notes, it's this legacy of faith or legacy of failure. We are living one in one of those two worlds. We are building, we are living a legacy of faith or we are living a legacy of failure. Now, you ought to be asking yourself, what does Johnny mean by that? Because because we're going to unpack that. So let me define legacy first of all, because we're using that word a lot today. Here's how I define legacy. This isn't in Webster's Dictionary. This is the definition I came up with. The influence and investment you make in the lives of others. That's a legacy. So it's the investment and the influence that I make in the lives of others. So if you are married, your greatest influence, your greatest investment is in your spouse. And in doing that, you're living a legacy. If you have children, then that's obvious. The investment that I and and influence that I have in my children is leaving a legacy. You may say, well, I don't have kids and I'm not married. Well, that's okay. Because the people that are around you where you work, where you learn, where you live, where you play. Those are relationships given to you sovereignly by Almighty God. I don't live where I live by mistake. God wants me to make an influence and an investment in my neighborhood, on my street, with my neighbors that God has placed around me. Me doing that is leaving a legacy. Now, I served under, uh, when I graduated from seminary, Lori's from this little town. My wife, Lori's from this little town in northern Pennsylvania, population of about 3,000, at least it was 
uh, almost 15 years ago. In little towns, not a lot changes, so maybe it might be 3,500 today. And so when I graduated from seminary, we went and we served at, her, at the church that she grew up in. It was culture shock for a city boy like me. Like I, I uh, never milked a cow, uh, never went on a deer hunt before. Um, those are illustrations for another time. I don't have time to mention those. But nevertheless, I served at a church, and I'm so thankful for the time that I had there because I served under a tremendous senior pastor, and he drove this home in me because I used to see the way that he invested his life in the people of that church. It wasn't a large church, a couple hundred people, but nevertheless, I saw this play out. And he said something to me that has stuck with me for a long time. He said, Johnny, at the end of your life, if you haven't invested in enough people to carry your casket one day, you have fallen short of what the Lord wants you to do. That stuck with me. That's not in the Bible, but that was just a tangible way that it stuck with me. Now, here's what I say when we give our definition of legacy, the influence and investment I make in the lives of others. Unfortunately, in my time in ministry, I've had to do more funerals for children than I have for adults who have lived into their 80s and 90s. And I'm, and I'm even thinking about those different families right now as I say that. And I remember in those times where there was walking into a hospital room and then finding out that their child had passed away or whether it was going into their home. And as I'm driving there, just trying to wrap my mind around just what that grief could possibly be like. And then having to do, prepare for, for, for those funerals and, 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 and leading those funerals out, the Lord reminded me of something about legacy. That legacy is not determined by the amount of days that you live. Legacy is determined by what you do with those days. And I have seen situations to where, unfortunately and tragically, to sit with families who have had to bury their babies, but to see what the Lord did through the hours and days that those babies lived to impact and influence those people to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and thinking to myself, man, unfortunately I know individuals who have lived 90 years who have had less of an investment and less of an influence than a child who lived for days or months. And we need to remind ourselves of that as we look at this passage of scripture. That your legacy is not determined by how, you long, long, how long you live on this earth, but it's determined by what you do with the time that you've been given by God. So I want to give you four contrasts this morning between a legacy of faith and a legacy of failure. And in giving those contrasts, we're going to see which one we are living as we unpack this passage of scripture so I'm gonna pray for us this morning and I simply want you to pray this. God, would you show me if I'm living a legacy of faith or would you show me that I'm leaving a legacy of failure? Because if you're living a legacy of failure, you don't know it because nobody says that's what I wanna live. So let's pray that. God, we're here today and we're open before your word and God, we say here at Salem Chapel, when your word is open, your mouth is open. So Lord, I know every person in this room and watching online wants to leave a legacy that is shaped by investing and influencing others in a positive way. 
So God, would you show us whether we're leaving a legacy of faith or we are living a legacy of failure. And God, may we be obedient to what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verses six and seven. We'll get into this passage. Here's what it says. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work, you need to underline this phrase in your Bible, that the Lord had done for Israel. Now here's what you need to understand about this passage of scripture. Is last week, Aaron walked through chapter one and into chapter two, and you dealt specifically with Israel going after claiming the land that, that, that God had promised them, and they were responsible to drive out the Canaanites from that land. The purpose of that, God did not want their pagan worship to influence his people, but as we saw, they were not completely obedient to doing that. They did not completely do what God had called them to do, and they're going to face the consequences of that as we will see today, but also in the coming weeks. But have you ever watched a movie where it kind of just starts into a scene of things going on? And then after you get into the movie, maybe sometimes it's 15 minutes, 20, maybe even longer, all of a sudden it flashbacks to give you the context for how you got to that story. I was just watching something the other day and the movie that I was watching did that. That's kind of what we have going on here in chapter two, verses six through 23. Chapter one, you have the people actually not being completely obedient to what Joshua has told them to do. But if you're like me and you're reading verse six, you're like, wait a minute, I thought Joshua died. Now he's alive in verse six. No, 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 this is a flashback, okay? So what I see in this passage of scripture, what you need to see, just as I make observations, is here's what impresses me about Joshua. Joshua is fully aware of who deserved the credit for all of the victories that Israel experienced. Like it doesn't seem to me that Joshua had this trouble of taking credit for what the Lord did. Like in that battle of Jericho, if you, if you learn that story in Sunday school or growing up and they walk around the walls of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down and they get the victory, like, like Joshua didn't take credit for that. And the reason why I say that Joshua must have been very intentional in giving the credit to the Lord is look at what it says again in the end of verse seven. It says that everyone, all of Israel, who, that had seen all the great work, that they didn't attribute it to Joshua. It doesn't say there they'd seen all the great work that Joshua had done for Israel. No, no, no. They understood who the one was who was doing the work. And that would not have happened if Joshua had not been intentional and pushing the praise, and pushing the parade, and pushing the glory to the one who actually accomplished it. And obviously, he calls the people to take possession of the blessings that God had given them. He's like, no, no, God gave you this. You need to take possession of it. You need to take it, experience it, enjoy it. So here's the first Contract between a legacy of faith and a legacy of failure. Number one, a legacy of faith focuses on what the Lord has done. A legacy of failure focuses on what you have done. Joshua put the focus on where the focus should be. And because he did that, it not only influenced himself, but it also influenced the people 
that he was called to lead. That it wasn't about him, it wasn't about what he did, no, no, no. It was about what the Lord chose to do in him, through him, and the impact that that made on other people. Now, I'm gonna ask you a question here in a moment that's gonna ask you to reflect on what the Lord has done for you. But before we ask that question, I think we need to ask this question first, and it's this. Ask yourself, don't say it out loud, but in your mind, answer this question. Do I deserve to have the Lord do anything for me? Do I deserve the Lord to do anything for me? I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter two in your Bibles. Keep your finger in Joshua chapter two. And in Ephesians 2, here's what the writer of Ephesians, this letter to the church at Ephesus that was written by Paul, a missionary at the time, says this in verse 1, of you, and he says it of me, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Can, let me read that again. And verse one, chapter two of Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How are we described in verse one? Dead. Now that doesn't mean physically dead, that means spiritually dead. That there's nothing that I can do to have a relationship with a holy God. I am spiritually dead. I cannot save myself. Many people have tried, but no one can save themselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. What else does it say? In fact, I mean, you know this about me. If you're new to Salem Chapel, you're gonna hear say say this often, and it won't be just true in this series, but I encourage you to write in your Bible, and in mine, instead of you, it says, I put my name there, and Johnny was dead in trespasses and sins. It says, in which you, in which I, once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we, but me, once lived in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's why I say that. Once again, I'm not asking that question so you can feel worse about yourself. I'm asking that question so that we can embrace the reality and have the right answer. Do I deserve anything from the Lord? Not in and of myself. But here's the deal. I can't appreciate the blessings of the Lord. And I cannot appreciate and say and, and understand the invitation that the Lord is giving me to take possession of all the things that he's given me if I don't first ask the question, do I deserve any of it? No. But when I say no, that makes what I have from the Lord all the more sweeter. Because in verse four, if you look at it in your Bibles, I have it boxed in my Bible, that phrase, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. He's seated me in the heavenly places. He's given me an inheritance so that in the coming ages, I might see the immeasurable richness of his grace towards me. So now ask your question, what has the Lord done for you? Ask that. Or should I say answer that? 
Do I deserve anything? No. But what has the Lord done for me? Because oftentimes if I asked you that question, you were sitting across the table in a coffee shop somewhere and I was like, you know, put your name in there. Hey, you know, Sally, what has the Lord done for you? You know what oftentimes we do in that question, especially during this time that we've been living in for the last six or seven months? It was like, nothing. Nothing. You would be sitting here and saying, nothing. I've lost my job. I've, I've, uh, I feel more depressed. I, I'm struggling with anxiety more than I ever have before. No, no, no. But what I want to encourage you with this morning is a legacy of faith is rooted in what the Lord has done for me. And the one thing that can never be taken away from you, regardless of circumstance, regardless of climate, is your relationship with Jesus Christ. No one can take that from me. God forbid I could lose my wife. God forbid I could lose my kids. God forbid I could lose my job. God forbid I could lose my house. And on and on and on it, it could go. And all of those things are good things. And all of those things I need to say, Lord, you're the one that's given me that. I can't take credit for the wife that you've given me. Amen. I could not take credit for the children that you've given me. And we could go on and on and on. But God, more than anything, what I need to look to right now is what you've given me in Jesus Christ. I can't take credit for that. And that's where my legacy of faith starts. It starts in me embracing and focusing on what the Lord has done. Man, a legacy of failure focuses on what you have done. And when you put yourself on a pedestal, whether that's with your spouse, whether that's with your kids, whether that's with the people that work underneath you, whether that's someone that you work for, you're setting yourself up for failure because we are all broken people. I don't know, it's what the Lord has done. Dads, when God intervenes and blesses you with, with whatever it may be, do you gather your family together and do you say, hey, right now, we need to thank the Lord for the way that he's intervened. Man, I remember as a kid, one of the most foundational and formational things in my life was times when God intervened and provided in supernatural ways. And I remember my parents, they were not perfect by any means, and they would tell you that too. But they'd gathered together, all six boys, all together in a, in a, in a living room, and, we, and they would let us know what God had done so that my faith and my assurance was not in my dad and what he could accomplish, but in what the Lord was doing. It's part of our legacy of faith. And we fail so often when we want to put the focus on what we have done, what we can do, what we have accomplished. And if we do that, it's a cyclical nature of failure over and over and over and over again. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110 years. Anybody want to live that long? I guess not. Uh, verse nine. And they buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers, which means the generation with Joshua all died. And there arose another generation. This is the tragedy piece. 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord of the work that he had done for Israel. I want to show a chart for you, just kind of see the progression that happens in the people of Israel. Because you have this area during the days of Joshua, and we looked at this just a minute ago in verses six and seven, that Joshua did an intentional job at, at pursuing his relationship with the Lord and pointing people to what the Lord had done in and through him, not taking credit for those things, but pointing the spotlight to Jesus. And, and what was the characteristic of, of that generation? Well, they had personal experience for themselves in what the Lord had done. And the result was, is man, they served the Lord. And then you have these elders who survived Joshua after Joshua died and what were they intentional in well they were they were lifting up the memories of what the Lord had done and the result was is the people served the Lord but now you come to the end of verse 10 and you have this next generation and it's so tragic and it says there that they had no knowledge or regard for the Lord's work and the result is they abandoned the Lord. They ran away from him. They wanted to have nothing to do with him. Here's the second contrast between a legacy of faith and a legacy of failure from verses eight through 10. A legacy of faith emphasizes a personal relationship with the Lord. A legacy of failure emphasizes only memories of the past. Let me say a sombering reality right now. That your family is one generation away from apostasy. What I mean by that, that's a big word from wanting nothing to do with the Lord. Let me get more specific. The Pereira family, my family, someone who's the senior pastor of the church, is one generation away from wanting to have nothing to do with the Lord. You know why that is? Because there's no grandchildren in heaven. Like my kids don't get a free pass to heaven because their dad's the senior pastor of Salem Chapel. Your kids don't get a free pass to heaven because you're in church right now. Every person is responsible for their own acceptance or rejection of Jesus as their savior. Every person. And when I look at this passage of scripture, I'm reminded of that reality that Joshua, man, he served the Lord. Joshua pointed the spotlight where it needed to be. He had tremendous influence and investment in the people that he was called to leave. And those people were encouraged to have their own relationship with the Lord, and they did. The result was they served the Lord. And then you have these elders who carry on Joshua's legacy, and, and they have a relationship with the Lord. But you begin to see a slow uh, devolving when all that's being emphasized are memories. Well, hey, do you remember when we walked, when Grandpa and Grandma walked around? The walls of Jericho. Hey, do you remember when so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that? But there was beginning to be an erosion because you had a group of people that were not making it personal to themselves. They were living off the fumes of the past generation. Now here's what I'm not saying. 
even though my kids can't live off of my faith, and even though your kids cannot or your friends cannot or, or your husband or wife cannot, that every person has to have their own personal relationship with the Lord, that does not alleviate the responsibility that I have to create an environment that fosters one, my children and those around me to want to hunger and thirst for Jesus, to want to have that relationship with Jesus as their own. And this text is a witness to the failure of the current community to keep alive the Lord's gracious work and saving acts in each individual living out their faith. Here's why I say that. Because the priests were responsible to teach the law to the people of Israel, the written word of God that they had at that time, and they left that. They abandoned that. They became complacent to that. Fathers were responsible to practice Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, that says that they, the dads were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, but then also to pass that on to their children, to create an environment to where that's fostered, to where they create an environment to where they understand what the Lord has done through his words. But see, they began to abandon that. And the result was, is at best, you had a group of people that were living off the fumes of the previous generation, and the result is, is they abandoned the Lord. Here's my fear for us, is if we have kids, is that we're putting more investment in a ball, in a dance, in a grade, than we, all in, than we are in fostering our child's desire to want to know the Lord for themselves. And if you have to make the choice whether or not you have time to do one or the other, I think you know from this passage of scripture what the Lord wants you to focus on the most. How do we miss, man, we miss that mark, don't we? Let's get super practical You've got kids every week. You may be watching online and you're not here. We just started Salem Kids Ministry again at the nine o'clock hour, but as we're scaling it up, I know some of you, man, you're like, I gotta get on it. Monday morning at 7 a.m. to get my kids in there. And I know that we're living in that tension as we get more and more workers, we'll be able to open up more and more. But some of you are online and that's okay and you're watching that right now. And you've got kids. I wonder, are you taking advantage to go and to download the resources so that you can walk with your kids through different stories that emphasize that Jesus is the hero of their story and what Jesus has done for them, that he loves them. Or are you hoping that they just live off the fumes that you have? I love sports as much as the next person. I love to rebound for my daughter and throw the football with my son. I love it. But what are we giving more time to? Because a legacy of faith focuses on a personal relationship with the Lord. And moms and dads, hear me on this. If you're not married, hear me on this. that what the Lord wants most for you is for you to foster your own relationship with the Lord. 
for you to want that. If you're not married yet, how in the world can I attract someone who has that relationship with the Lord if I'm not fostering it in myself? He or she ain't gonna give you the time of day. I can't be what my kids need to be if I'm not first in the Lord's word and developing a prayer life and hungering and thirsting after him myself. It's about a personal relationship because here's, here's what we see from judges. Here's the fear, and I, hope, I want this to be sombering for us. I had to apologize to my kids this morning. Because I had allowed the busyness to crowd out what we had developed as a habit to have personal worship every week as a family. I had to apologize to them this morning. Because I wasn't about to get up here and tell you to do it when I know I had even allowed some things to crowd it out. Because here's what I don't want, and here's what you don't want, and here's what the Lord doesn't want for us. is for us to pursue the Lord and not to look at ways to invest and influence others so that the next generation after us, oh man, man, they made me go to Easter service and they do that, but honestly, it has as much nostalgia as the Easter bunny. It's about a legacy of faith. Here's the third thing. Look at verses 11 through 15. It says, in the people of Israel, here's the result, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. We'll stop there, but you can go all the way through verse 15. So you had this God, Baal. It's mentioned often if you've read through the Old Testament. He was a sun god, he was the god of life, he was the god of fertility, he was kind of the highest echelon of the male gods, lower G, the idols that the Canaanites worshipped. The term actually means owner or lord. Worship of Baal involved magic, the performance of rituals, sacred prostitution, because they believed that by worshiping this God this way, he would bring rain for their crops and they could have a harvest. But you also have this other God, Ashtaroth, that's mentioned here that Israel got caught up worshiping. This was the female God. This was the equivalent, the, the female equivalent to Baal, the highest of the female gods. And she was the goddess of love and war and worship of her was sexual in nature. But the worship, they did those worship because they, they thought that they would experience blessing and they would, they would experience life and that, and that she would, she would, this God would grant families fertility. And so you look at this picture of these gods and you look at them and you're like, how silly. These things look weird. You know, like they worship that? And it's easy to cast judgment on what somebody else worships. But I don't want you to focus on what someone else worships. I want you to ask yourself, what are you worshiping? Because here's the third contrast of a legacy of faith and a legacy of failure. A legacy of faith worships the Lord and a legacy of failure practices idolatry. See, I have certain things, certain idols that my heart is drawn to. 
And you may look at those and say, man, Johnny, those are silly things. I can't believe you're attracted to that. But I may look at the things that your heart's drawn to and say, man, I can't believe that you struggle with that. But we all have certain bales and asteros that are vying for our attention. It's interesting that the children of Israel began worshiping these things because the culture was having more influence on them than their relationship with the Lord. And how applicable is that to us today? What are, who are we looking to to define what is right and wrong? Who are we looking to to define how we live? Who are we looking to to define how we view the world that God has placed us in? See, idolatry is rooted in a lie that says this. I will experience more blessing in my life by worshiping this thing or purpose, person rather than the Lord. That's the lie of idolatry. That I'm actually gonna get more blessing by worshiping this person or this thing more than my relationship with the Lord. Because after all, that's what the people of Israel did. We're gonna worship Baal so we can have a harvest and rain can come. We're gonna worship Ashtaroth so, so we can be given life and be able to be fruitful and multiply. Those are promises that God gave. Those are blessings that they actually experienced. But oh, how our heart as Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. Our hearts are idle factories. And a legacy of faith is not perfect. No, 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 don't misunderstand me. But a legacy of faith is diligent to say, no, 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 we're going to worship the Lord first and foremost. Write this down. Good things become bad things when they become our main thing. Good things become bad things when they become our main thing. Case in point, nothing wrong with a ball. Nothing wrong with getting good grades. Nothing wrong with wanting to be married. Nothing wrong with being married. Nothing wrong with having children. Nothing wrong with wanting a nice place to live. Nothing wrong with wanting a promotion. But good things become bad things when they become the main thing. And we can actually take good and arbitrary and objective things and they become bad things when we begin to bow down to those things rather than first saying, no, no, no. I wanna leave a legacy of faith. I wanna worship the Lord first and foremost in my life. I don't wanna leave a legacy that fails and practice idolatry. Because the results of idolatry are found at the end of verse 15. Do you look at, look at it with me? We didn't have time to read it. But I want to read the last phrase in verse 15 because this is the consequences of idolatry. It says, and they were in terrible distress. You know what I've found in my life? That when I pursue after the wrong thing, it always leaves me in distress. God, I love this thing so much. I'm pursuing this thing so much. And then you know what happens in my heart? I, anxiety continues to grow because I'm afraid of losing it. Because this is my world. This is where all my time and all my attention and everything that has taken up my life and because it's this idol that I polish and that I worship and that I serve, 
What that ends up doing in my heart, it creates distress. It doesn't make me more happy. It doesn't make me more content. It doesn't give me more satisfaction. No, 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 no. It causes more distress in me. Why? Because I'm worshiping the wrong thing. Here's the last thing, and we'll read verses 16 through 23. Look at it. I underline this word in my Bible, verse 16, then. Because the end of verse 15 says, man, they were in terrible distress. But then there's hope in verse 16 because it says then. Then what? Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. You see God's mercy there? They didn't listen. Look at the way that their idolatry is described. For they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. They were unfaithful to the covenant love that God had given them. That said, I'm gonna be faithful to you. It's a one-way love. It's not dependent upon you. And this love that I'm giving you it's not made, made to make you feel guilty. That's not the motivation. No, no, your motivation to be obedient to me is out of gratitude for all the ways that I'm blessing you, all the ways I'm wanting you to take possession of it, all the ways that I'm wanting you to enjoy my blessings and the relationship that I have with you. But no, they wanted to cheat. They wanted to be unfaithful to the love that God had given them. In verse 18, and whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity or compassion by their groaning because of those who had inflicted and oppressed them. But look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. You're gonna see this chart a lot because it really depicts Israel's, the way that they lived. They sin, they experience the consequences of that sin, they cry out to God for God to rescue them. God out of his love and grace does. He intervenes and then what happens? They just repeat it over and over again. This cyclical exhausting way of living where the only time I pick up my Bible, the only time I call out to God is when I'm in absolute trouble. God, you're my 911 call, but you're not my relationship. So here's the last contrast. A legacy of faith runs to the Lord's merciful love. A legacy of failure runs away from the Lord's merciful love. Sin and disobedience has a price all the time in our life. It has a price. It's not free. Can it be fun in the moment? Absolutely. You'll never hear me say that it's not. Some of you are surprised that I'm saying that right now. Sin can be fun for a season, but it's never free. And when I disobey, and when you disobey, here's what we're saying. We're saying that the immediate pleasure that sin brings us is worth more to us than the lasting consequences that we may have to pay. So you're like, Johnny, what do I do with that? 
Here's what the Lord wants you to do with that. You may be sitting in this camp today and you're like, man, as I hear us walk through this passage, man, I'm living a legacy of failure. I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. I'm wondering why I came today. I mean, I'm not over in this camp of leaving a legacy of faith. I'm over here in the failure camp. And if that's you, here's what I want you to understand. The Lord is like this. He's just waiting for you to run to him. See, the Lord's never like this. And that's how I can be. That's how you can be. When people disappoint us, when people betray us, man, we can be like this. But the Lord's never like this. He's always like this. All the people of Israel needed to do was cry out to him. And God was there. God was there. And a legacy of faith, I said this before, is not a legacy of perfection. A legacy of faith is simply someone who says, I want to abide in the Lord's love. That when I wander, I confess it, I forsake it, I repent of it, and I want to live in the merciful love of the Lord, the love that forgives and the love that restores. That's where the Lord wants you to live. Not with guilt, but with gratitude. That God, when I wander and I start worshiping another idol, God, I'm gonna smash it and I'm gonna look to you. The only perfect person in the Bible is Jesus Christ. And God uses broken people who have hearts to him to be the tools by which he makes investments and he has influence. And that's what God wants for you. Let me ask you this. Man, we put out just recently a Bible, Bible reading tool. We've talked about it. If you're in a life group, you know about it. Man, that's a great place to start. You can go to our website, salemchapel.org, backslash discipleship tools. You can download that. It, I wrote a whole chapter explaining that tool and to help you engage in God's word, to engage in the relationship that you have in Jesus Christ. Listen to me, you may be in this room or you may watch it online. And I'm gonna take time to say this because it's important. And you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It has to be personal. And Romans 10, 13 says that if I call out to God and I acknowledge that he is my Lord and Savior and I confess my sins, that I believe in my heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that I will be saved. Right now in this room or online, you can literally call out in the quietness of your mind and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I place my full trust in you and you can begin your legacy of faith. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, man, let's be intentional. Let's leave a legacy of faith. And that's not determined by the amount of days that we live on this earth, but what we do in those days. Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, we are here today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you've challenged me, how you've convicted me, how you've comforted me in this passage. And God, I pray that it would be the same for every person who has heard these words today from Judges 2. God, may we leave 
and live a legacy of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.